Every single one of us has a life worth paying attention to. All of us have intersections found at the heart of who we are. Join us as we try to be grateful for the gift of every person we encounter. Each of us has a rich and powerful story. Hello, friends. My name is Chrissy Reeves Pendergrass. And I'm Adam Baker. This is Instructions for Living a Life, a podcast about the stories found where faith, hope, love, and mental health connect. Hello, friends. My name is Adam Baker. And I'm Chrissy Reuse Pendergrass. And this is Instructions for Living a Life, the podcast where we explore the stories in people's lives at the intersections of faith, hope, love, and mental health. And today we have a friend named Leonor Ortega Till. Did I say all parts of that name correctly? <laughs> you did. Adam, good job. That's my name. <laughs> the reason I'm checking in is because I've known Leonor for a little while now, and I've perpetually missaid her first name apparently and she graciously corrected me so i'm just double checking and making sure yeah you but got it we're good oh i'm weirdly curious to know what you were calling her in your head but we don't have I, to share that <laughs> i've i've lenore. always just said lenore and 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 there you go okay. so that's the yeah but leonore I know a, a bit about you. I've you were a guest on uh, another podcast that uh, I am a co-host on, and we talked about punk and hardcore and all sorts of fun stuff like that. But uh, some of our listeners may not know who you are and kind of where you are. And if you could just kind of introduce yourself a little bit, that'd be great. Yeah, so I'm here in Denver, Colorado, and this is the birthplace of a ska punk band called Five Iron Frenzy. And uh, yeah, 44 years old, still rocking out. We just released a new album. <laughs> um, yeah, also one of the people that was on staff at a church called Scum of the Earth. So that was the Five Iron Church, and it's still going strong, even though none of us are on staff over there. And I'm a mom and a wife, and yeah, just overall girl hanging out in Denver, trying to do life the best I can here in COVID. I'm really impressed with, I'm just a side note, I'm just really impressed with how I am not fangirling right now. I'm handling it very well. I'm keeping it all in because Five Iron, <laughs> I, I, so I, I prepared myself emotionally for this, but Five Iron Frenzy was a huge band in my, in my house. Um, my brother is insanely jealous right now that I am having this conversation with you. So we're glad that you're here with us. Oh yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I like the, the good and deep connections. It makes me, yeah. it makes me happy. Um, <laughs> Lenore, could you just tell us a little bit more about um, just kind of how you started your journey? It could be maybe where you grew up and kind of where things began for you. Yeah, so I grew up in a tiny town called Pierce, Colorado. It's about maybe 800 people. It's very, very small dirt road and uh, grew up to two Mexican-American parents that are very fun, but kind of hippies, I guess. They wouldn't say they're hippies because honestly, they're veterans, but you know, back in the day in the 80s, a lot of parents were very hands off. So if the kids were naked, if the kids were running around, the kids were unsupervised. So that was my life. <laughs> Just, yeah, kind of nature living my life and having fun and just basically being a good kid. But part of my story is that my dad um, struggled with addiction in the 80s. He struggled with addiction and cocaine. And I found out around fourth grade and I knew something wasn't right as a kid mm -hmm. because we would go on vacations and we'd you know, go home in the middle of the night or my parents would argue. Or when you're a kid, you know more 
then maybe the adults know you know, but you don't know exactly right. what's up, right? right? <laughs> so I grew up knowing that we had this dirty secret. And even though we went to church sometimes, we had this dirty secret and we're different than the other families because we were trying to keep it together and be those Sunday Christians, you know, at least Easter and Christmas, but maybe a couple more times a year. So that was part of my life. And then I basically, I felt this duality because when you'd go, when I would go to school, um, again, this is so funny and I hope you laugh. It's not meant to sound offensive, but I look white. <laughs> like I can pass for sure. not being Mexican or, or being Mexican, depending. Um, but I had this crew of friends that I was trying to fit in with and they were the Caucasian, really awesome Girl Scout girls. But once I got into junior high, I wanted to make friends with all the Chicanas, you know, and they were into like, rap and putting all this makeup on and being tough and pretending like we were gang members. And so around that age, like junior high, I started not being true to myself. Mm. I started to be a bully. I started to mm. dress differently. And I have to tell you, this is just so funny. The way my mom got me to stop dressing provocatively is she said, you know, your friends can really pull off those short skirts with their curves, but you kind of look like a boy in a dress. <laughs> oh, you know, that probably would take all the fun out of it. <laughs> well, <Yeah>. dang, mom. <laughs> See, Ooh, that, that was that's a burn. Yeah. Dude, reverse psychology at its best, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I started making bad choices with my friends, and it's because I wanted to um, be accepted in the Chicana world. Like, I wanted people that I saw as my peers to see me as, you know, someone cool that they'd want to hang out with. And they liked hanging out with me because if they were with me, they wouldn't get in trouble because their parents mm. saw me as the good girl, right? The girl that sometimes went to youth group. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> well, come on, Chrissy. I was saying I was going to youth group, but then, I know. you know, we would leave. <laughs> oh yeah. We wouldn't go right. in. My parents would drop me off. <laughs> She was the she was a good friend though. <laughs> yeah, I was bad. I was so bad. We would even go to church lock-ins and we'd never go in to the lock-in. I mean, we were bad. We were we were experimenting with drugs. We definitely wanted acceptance from guys. We definitely were, you know, ditching out on school, stealing, all kinds of bad things, and even bullying other kids. And at 17, my best friend got pregnant. And then mm -hmm. we had a friend that died um, while on a motorcycle and high. And so that was a wake up call. That was a huge mm -hmm. wake up call where I, I kind of saw a crossroads and decided either I'm going to go that way and be like my friends. And mm -hmm. that's kind of scary because we're getting more into intense into things, or I can go this way with the God thing. You know what I mean? Like, are you mm -hmm. going to be a nerdy Christian youth grouper? Mm -hmm. um, and that, thank God, is when I found my tribe. And by my tribe, I mean the Christian alternative people. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Adam sure knows what you mean. <laughs> no, but it, it's true. I was it, not that person. <laughs> I think we, we, we touched upon this briefly in the other podcast that kind of going to a, a festival like Cornerstone in Bushnell, Illinois, where you show up in the middle of a cornfield in the heat of the summer and everybody around you actually looks the same way you did, which made you completely stand out in your small Midwestern town. But there you're, <laughs> yeah. you're with your people, you know, you, right. Hey, I have that shirt too, man. Like we both listened to this little band that released like six records, you know, and, and 
like there was a connection there and it really made a difference. That's what happened to me. So basically I, you know, Micah Ortega is my second cousin. He also plays in Five Iron Frenzy. And at church camp, I started to meet people with mohawks. I started to meet people that were in Christian metal, Christian goth, Christian alternative, Christian punk. And I knew I loved Jesus, but I never knew there was Christian music. So back in the day, I was making the lyrics different for bad religion songs, right? Like I would change, I'll believe in God, I'll believe in God when two and three or five, like I was changing lyrics to make it edifying, you know? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so finding this tribe was cool because it wasn't trying to be gangstery Chicana-y and it wasn't trying to fit in with all the nerds, even though I was a total nerd. It was <laughs> being more what fit me. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. about the time I joined Five Iron. At 17? Uh, 18, right out of high school. Oh, wow. Yeah, pretty much, yeah, right out of high school. So I joined when I was in high school and then I drive up to Denver for band practice. And then that... Uh, I went, decided to go to Colorado Christian University, which, whoa, I did not know Christian culture and know what was coming to me. And I had, you know, the blue mohawk. <laughs> I was just thinking that. I was like, that's <laughs> a clash. <laughs> like, <laughs> it is, but it isn't because I had like yeah. the, the blue mohawk and I had the, I looked different, but my heart was similar. And I needed to, mm-hmm. um, I guess this next part of my life was another, another lesson in duality. And as I was thinking about this podcast and mental health and my own story, I started recognizing that in my life, there's always been conflict with duality. I'm this, but I'm this. Mm -hmm. And so the second part of my duality came of I'm punk rock, fight the system. Um, You know, I love the clash. I love Operation Ivy. I love no effects. And all these songs are talking about a better society. I was raised um, Hispanic, but also Democrat. And also, you know, as a kid of veterans, And also as a Christian. And so that kind of people go, what? And I go, what to them? Like, huh? (laughs) I don't understand. And so, but when I got to Christian college, you meet a lot of people that have this, I call it a house. I basically think of our, you know, when we get to college or high school, we have this house, which is our, my metaphor for faith. And it's this house that you've built and it's comfortable to live in, but you didn't build it yourself. Mm-hmm. So maybe American Christianity told you a house is a square and maybe, you know, Girl Scouts on my honor, I will try to love God in my country told you, you should have two bedrooms for kids. Mm-hmm. You'll someday have maybe your parents and their church told you, you should have a yard with a high fence. Um, essentially all the elements of my Christianity don't smoke, don't do drugs, don't have sex before marriage. Um, these people are good. These people are bad. This is what happened to native Americans. All this was in my little house. And as I got to college, I didn't feel comfortable in my house anymore. I I'd basically struggled and outgrown it and just started recognizing the elements of my faith were not what I really believed. And I had never done that work. So in order to make my faith my own, I blew up the house. And mm. I said, I have a foundation, which is I believe in God. And I believe in mm. Jesus and the Holy Spirit, because I knew in my heart that was something I did want to take with me on my journey. But I started slowly probably throughout two years, rebuilding the elements of what my faith would look like. Um, And it was not a pleasant experience. It was a challenging experience. In what way? Um, It's a lot of isolation because it's very uncomfortable to live in a mystery. Christianity Mm -hmm. and especially church and especially Christian college and especially guys you date, they all want you to have an absolute. Mm -hmm. What do you believe about this? You know, your band is playing Acquire the Fire, but you're wearing this t-shirt of this band. 
Are you going to turn it inside out? Or are you Mm going to play for the kids that are smoking out back that want to come and see this show? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was hard because I didn't live in an absolute world for about two years. And even when Five Iron would play a huge show, the first thing I would do was look to see if there was an escape hatch. I would physically walk around the stage and say, is there a hole under the stage I can go hide and cry when the band does worship songs? Is there a back door I can run and run to a field and cry out to God? Is there a place? Because I know after we play every new day, I'm going to be on my knees asking God to help me during this process. Mm -hmm. And that was a season that I did entirely alone. I didn't tell anybody about that. Is there a reason? I don't think I recognized that it was something I could tell anybody about. Mm. And I figured if you tell somebody about how you're building your faith, they're going to tell you what you should add. Well, that's Mm. probably true. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Pastors are going to tell you, best friends are going to tell you. Everybody's well-meaning. And to be honest, I've told people, right? Mm -hmm. So that was just part of my story was I didn't want input during that moment. I needed to come up with what I believed in. And, And still, I had to be okay at the end of the day saying, Faith is fluid and there are going to be aspects that I'm probably not going to build for a long time, or it's going to be made out of, you know, wood, because like, even when you live in a literal house, you start changing things, you repaint the house, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I recognize there are going to be things that I do believe, and there are going to be things that are going to have to be fluid. And that was a painful time also, because I was in love with a quote unquote, secular guy. Oh, you man. were unequally yoked? <laughs> oh, my oh, gosh. No. <laughs> I just shuddered at that phrase, Chrissy. Good grief. I know. I'm so sorry. I had to no, it up Exactly. Oh. I was unequally yoked. I'm thinking of eggs, egg yolk. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> so weird. And the funny thing is my parents never pushed any of that on me. My parents are wonderful. They are not mm-hmm. judgmental people. So for my mom, when I was, you know, a young lady, she would say, date a lot of kinds of people. Learn mm-hmm. who you are. Mm-hmm. Don't just assume one thing about yourself. So she wasn't the one that was saying, oh, no. It was, you know, my co- Christian community mm-hmm. that was very much like, uh-oh, you know what's going to happen. Um, and essentially, the Lord was very gracious because this guy ended up dumping me. And he said, I dated you because you were a believer in Jesus and you had certain standards. And I'm seeing that you are distraught in this relationship and you're changing. And I don't want to get in the way of your relationship with your God. Wow. Oh, wow. Wow. Right. Thank you, Lord. (laughs) Yeah. Like talk about God working in a person. Absolutely. (laughs) I was like, that sounds like the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Yeah. And this guy, he's really cool. We're still friends. He went to my wedding. I've hung out with him still. My husband knows him like, cool guy. He still believes how he believes. And I still believe how I believe, but I appreciate that. um, We didn't have to break each other's hearts and we didn't have to become Mm -hmm. enemies to do this part of our process. Right, right, right. Which I think is not a, is not a, that's a pretty profound thing for you to realize at such a young age. Cause I don't think most people, that's not where we leap at that age. It's a pretty mature act of caring for a person, you know, Mm -hmm. like I already care about you. It's why I'm dating you. But I care about you enough to say us being together is doing more harm to you than good right now. Mm-hmm. Like maybe you have some stuff you need to work through. And But that doesn't uh, mean we can't, we can't still be friends. You know, like that doesn't yeah. mean that what we formed this relationship on isn't still there. That's yeah. really great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
So after I kind of built my house, that's about the same time that um, Five Iron started touring, you know, and I'm pretty much at this point, a quote unquote, professional Christian. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and this is never something, you know, when people say, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up? It's, I never thought, you know, oh, I want to be a rock star in a missional Christian band. Like that wasn't um, <laughs> on my There's list. There's a duality there that is interesting. <laughs> in a oh, band. yeah, totally. And so the bummer part, though, was that in order to do this, in 1997, we had a band meeting and we all decided we're going to quit colleges if we're in college. We're going to quit our jobs if we have jobs. Most of us, you know, we're at Baskin Robbins or, you know, Christian bookstores or Best Buy. So the job, leaving the job wasn't a massive deal. But the hard part for me was when I decided to quit college to tour full time, I lost my father's support. And I don't just mean financially. He was not happy. He's like kind of a strict Mexican-American dad. He's like, oh, yeah, my daughter wants to tour with seven guys full time and none of them are, you know, married. And no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, right? I don't know. I don't know a lot of dads that from especially back then. You'd be like, oh, OK, sure. <laughs> I know. Yeah. And so it was hard um, because he basically came to one concert with Five Iron and I was so happy because I could see him in the crowd. It was one of those Christian cafe kind of concerts, you know, where, mm-hmm. you know, we're ups- it was a vineyard and it's supposed to be a, a safe space. I didn't, you know, send him to a punk club to see us. So I thought this would be a good way. We started our first song and I saw him get up and walk out. Mm. Yeah. And he basically said the whole thing of, oh, can't understand the lyrics. That's not Christian music. Mm-hmm. How do you cope with that? It was really hard. It was super challenging. It was emotional because every time I would go to my house in Pierce in the middle of nowhere, and then I know I'd be going on a three-month tour after that, so I'd get all my laundry done, you know, and say goodbye to my parents. And even just waving on the porch, when I'd drive away, I'd start to cry because I was like, I wish my dad would be stoked about this, but he's not. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I grew up as daddy's little girl, and so mm-hmm. it was hard um, to know that he was, for a couple of years, he was just not stoked. But want to know what happened? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's a no, crazy. No, I want to sit here, right? <laughs> right? This is awkward. No, this is sad. <laughs> then it gets I, was, I was like, do I ask for the good resolution or do we sit in the <laughs> I tension? Wasn't and sure I either. Like, <laughs> yeah, the good thing about podcasts and the good thing about already having lived this is we can just move forward. So here we go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 11 11 97 was the day that Five Iron Frenzy released our album, um, our newest album ever. And the last song on that album is called Every New Day. And that song is uh, essentially, you know, most Five Iron fans, especially if they're Christians, that's their favorite song. It's like the most spiritually uplifting. And Reese Roper, who's our lyricist, really poured out his heart in that song. And it's definitely a prayer. And so um, the concert where we were going to play, I think Reliant K was opening and we were, you know, wearing Star Star Trek outfits, you know, of course. (laughs) Why would you? I loved Reliant K too. I was just sorry, I geeked out for a minute. <laughs> yeah, wearing Star Trek outfits and the whole concert was done in, um, it was like a play. We had written it like a play where we stayed in character. So I was Ohura. So the whole concert oh, so was good. a drama. So you know, we had Tribbles. We had, you know, Kenny, the guy in the red shirt came and died and all these parts, tribbles. right? That's so much fun. <laughs> yeah, and Reese was, you know, Captain Kirk with his captain's log and Micah was a, or Dennis was a Vulcan. Micah was a Klingon. It was awesome. So 
anyway, I go outside before the show and there's a long line because by this time, Five Iron had gotten, you know, popular. <laughs> so there's a huge line down the uh, sidewalk, like, you know, long, long, long line. And I'm walking down the line and I see my mom, who I was hoping would come, and my dad, oh, who yay. I did not know would come. And my dad, first of all, hands me a bouquet of flowers, which I'm like, you don't usually bring flowers to a punk show, but thanks. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the opera, right? Where you bring Is this a christening? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, he's thematic, so he's, thematic he's, issue there. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know what my mom brought him along. And again, this has been two years since I've been doing this thing, right? <laughs> and so they, they sit in the balcony, of course, you know. And uh, Five Iron plays a show and everyone's moshing and crowd surfing and it's just rocking out. But then we get to Every New Day and this was the first time we had played it live. And so the crowd can't sing along because they don't really know it. But there's definitely a change in energy to where people go from moshing to the whole nasty, dirty club becomes like the most sacred space you've ever seen. Mm. And people start worshiping. And hands start going in the air. And in fact, what would happen with Five Iron is we would never do encores. But if there was a moment of spiritual release, we would sing As the Deer and different praise songs and just sit where we were on the stage and it stopped being a Five Iron show and it started being a collective worship experience. And uh, that's what happened. And that last could last like from a half an hour to 45 minutes. Like it could last long. And as I'm walking, you know, to the side of the stage, the the promoter looks at me and goes, and he's Jewish. And he goes, did everybody just get saved? <laughs> I was like, no, no. And I, and I start walking up to the balcony. I know, confusing, right? Sure, sure. <laughs> I walk up to the balcony and my dad had been crying and he apologized and he hugged me. And it was one of those moments where, I mean, honestly, it was like one of those moments that was miraculous. And he said, he, he apologized and he said, I get it now. Like, I get it. This is to God's glory. And, you know, from then on, he's been my biggest fan. Hmm. So yeah, good. <laughs> yeah. That was good. And after that, it's like, sky's the limit. Like, bring it on. Now I'm ready to tour. Now I'm ready to give my life to this band. Mm -hmm. You have the full support of the people that care so deeply for you. You know, you needed them. Yeah, that's awesome. So do you, you said that in a way that makes me wonder, were you holding back some before when you're with your father's dis disapproval? I don't know if I was holding back, but there's always a piece of you that's missing when you leave mm -hmm. and you don't have people's support. Mm -hmm. Like it's mm -hmm. one thing when your family fully supports you in, especially in ministry, because I, I know a lot of Christians would use this word, but you start to understand it's your calling. Mm -hmm. It's like, I couldn't come up with a different calling. And then, and then it becomes your identity. Mm -hmm. And in a way that's good. And in a way being in a Christian rock band, when it becomes your identity, it can be bad because when people put you on a pedestal, you start to act like you deserve to be on a pedestal. Mm -hmm. And so what would happen with me in a bad way is I'd go on tour for a few months and, you know, I'm giving autographs and there's always food from the church ladies in the basement. So every night is Thanksgiving and I'm the only girl on tour. So I'm getting a lot of attention. Some of the hotels are nice. Sometimes there's like lavish tour buses. And then I get home and the world doesn't move fast enough for me or heaven forbid, I have to buy a ticket to somebody's concert and not get on the guest list or, you know, whatever. And I was a total bitch. It's like, I would get home and I was like, it took people that love me to say, you, you need to chill out. Like you've yeah. been catered yeah. to literally. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. 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 
grateful for those people in our lives who um, are willing to ask for forgiveness and yet also call us to a need for forgiveness as well. You know, <laughs> when, when, we, when we ourselves struggle, that's so good. Absolutely, absolutely. I think the next part of my story was, so I'd made my faith my own, now I had my dad's approval. And then just as it appeared that, you know, you always feel like, oh, I'm on this cruise control with God, things are good. I'm just gonna drive on into heaven someday or old age reading my Bible and you know, things are, I'm on this path, <laughs> right? Yeah, you laugh, cause you know. <laughs> Yeah. Right. But I've also been there, right? Like I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Every time you feel like you're just going to put it on cruise control and it's going to be simple. And then a storm comes. The next storm was probably the biggest in my life and probably the most difficult to endure, which was we're on the road and we're getting ready to play like three more shows. And then we're coming home and it's been a long tour, long tour. And I, uh, this is before cell phones, you know, Um, or maybe we had one cell phone that we kept in a sock because it was expensive to use, but I don't remember the details of how this this message got to me. A but sock? We, it doesn't matter. But I was, yeah, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> Point being, us, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you kept the sock. You kept the phone in the t- sock, so nobody would use it, right? Too expensive. Okay, for sure. It's kind of like a beeper. But word got back to me, and we pulled over at the side of the road to a truck stop, and my family is crying and essentially saying, "Come home. Your brother's died in a car accident." Hmm. So this, I was twenty-four. And he was 20 and he was driving very fast down a mountain road and just lost control at a place where a few people had died before because it wasn't very safe. And I came home and my whole family's there. You know, if you know anything about Mexicans, we're all very close. So aunts, uncles, cousins, second cousins, everybody like um, crying and and struggling. And so I, I guess I was in shock. I don't really remember two months after that. I think I remember friends coming and playing with my hair or trying to make me eat. Um, but the next thing on the horizon was five iron already had tickets to go to Europe. It was a big deal. And it was a few months out from when my brother passed away. And again, it comes that crossroads, right? Am I going to do it? Or am I not going to do it? Like what, what does God have for me? What is, what is my life trajectory at this point? Cause this is all new. And I remember the first time I went to church after my brother passed away and, um, just thinking I'm going to throw up. Like, this is bad. Like, this is hard. I cannot, I feel that either I'm going to hate God or I'm going to love God. And I remember um, really feeling that way and, and feeling like Jesus was kind of saying, I didn't do this to you, but I'm mourning with you. Mm-hmm. Like the humanity of Christ was kind of appealing to me in a way that said, I hurt too. And I was like, and this is like the moment I feel like I'm going to throw up. And I'm like, well, thank you because I didn't want to hate you. Mm-hmm. Like I already loved you. I already loved you. I've been following you with everything I have. I don't, I don't have the strength to hate you when you are my lifeline, right? Um, and I felt Jesus give me that physical hug, like a squeeze. Those are one of those moments where you don't forget. Um, and I kind of decided, like, again, not in a brain way, but I'm going to live my life twice as awesome and twice as intense because I'm living for my brother now and me. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of been a lot of my life story now is if there's an ocean and even if I don't have a swimsuit, I'm going in. If there's a chance I have to take, I take it. If there's a yes, I have to say, I do it. If there's a, I mean, I just live very balls to the wall (laughs) because death has just changed everything. It's kind of like, I don't care. I'm not scared of death, certainly, but I want to live well, right? For the both of us. 
Uh, so that was like the next part of my life. And I did go to Europe and I won't say that it was easy. I won't say that the next couple of years were easy at all. Not at all. Like there's always that, how do I be a good steward of my parents as they're mourning? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also live out my calling. And God gave me a metaphor for that too. Five Iron used to go on um, spiritual retreats every January. And we went on one in Alaska. And it was one of those moments where a pastor said to us, you know, they sometimes do these exercises. It's very common. Go in nature and talk to God for an hour silently and come back and tell us what you learned. And I hate those exercises because that's a lot of pressure, right? (laughs) Better make it happen in this hour. (laughs) I know. So stressful. So stressful. I'm going to go and I'm going to, you know, sure. So I go. And usually there isn't a big epiphany moment, right? But this one there was. There really was. I was looking, and I want to say maybe it was an echinacea leaf, some kind of leaf of a flower. And the metaphor that the Holy Spirit gave to me was, um, your dad is the root of the, of the flower. Your dad would gather resources for you guys. Um, he's kind of behind the scenes. Not many people would know about him, but he's gathering, 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 making sure that your mom, the stem, is supported. And your mom has all the strength in the world. She is the supportive one. She's using all her might to stand and make sure that your brother, who was the flower, can be adored. And your brother being the flower is only there for a short season. But it's very beautiful, but the season is very short. And I felt God say, you're the seed that has to go. And that, that for me was very reassuring because I had never thought, I'd never been at peace with my going. And your home base was still back in your parent with your in your hometown, right? It was not. We had bought the nastiest punk house ever. <laughs> and then slowly when we got Dennis as a trombone player, he had a nicer punk house. <laughs> Less punk, more bungalow. We started slowly moving into his house. <laughs> so I had my own bedroom at the band house. Everything was beige. And then you open the door into this bright yellow, plants, candles, pretty room. That's me. (laughs) I'm I'm just still sitting with you as the seed and Mm -hmm. having that as a metaphor. Because, I mean, you may have moved out by then, but the way you talk about your family is they matter deeply to you. You, I assume you still live there the way you talked about it. Yeah. Yeah. It it wasn't like I didn't live there because, I mean, we're so close, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Mm But what a, what a beautiful kind of, you are still a deeply a part of this plant, but you are the part that is sent out that new growth might happen. And it mm-hmm. still has echoes of the plant that you uh, like leapt forth from, right? Um, yeah, that's just a beautiful metaphor. I love it because for me, it's not something I could have come up with on my own. You know, I'm not that smart. <laughs> um, it's one of those things that it's just a gift to go, it's okay to be the seed. It's, it's okay to go and you have to go do what you have to do. Don't feel guilt. Don't feel guilt mm-hmm. about living in your calling. And that's the duality of me is it's always been hard. Um, you know, the next part of my life, becoming a wife, becoming a mother, and again, having to wrestle with the seed part of me mm-hmm. has not always been easy. Um, but I don't know if you know much of Five Iron Story. Did you know that we broke up for nine years? That's actually... I, yeah. That's actually been a a curiosity just in relation to what you've been talking about as kind of a band that led worship and a band that um, there was kind of a common shared core identity. I remember when you broke up, yeah. Um, 
and, and it's and you're in a different place now, and yet you're also dearly good friends making wonderful music still that is making a real difference. And yet there's a lot of difference. I wonder if you could talk about that. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's so funny. You said dear friends and wonderful music. And we're like, (laughs) we don't always feel like dear friends and we don't always feel like it's wonderful music, but Mm -hmm. you definitely get there. You definitely get there. I would say the guys in the band are more like siblings than friends. I mean, they are friends. They're my best friends, but you know, those, you know when you have friends for so long that you can have knock them out dragons? Yes. <laughs> okay, that's like when they become like family friends. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And it's good and it's bad because it's not that you don't respect them, just perhaps you feel a little too safe with them at times. Mm-hmm. And you can go into the danger zone. <laughs> <laughs> a little too safe. I like that. It's true. Like, you know what pushes their buttons and they know what pushes your buttons. And you almost expect more of them because they know you more. You expect Mm -hmm. more grace. You expect more respect. You expect more of them to know your love languages by now. You know, you should know. So I'm not giving you a pass because you've known me since I was 18. So there, there is, there are challenges. Um, But during that break, it was actually good for us, I think, to take that break. And we never knew when we took that break that we'd get back together. In fact, when we took that break, I assumed we never would get back together. And I guess I was okay with that. Um, I knew I wouldn't get married when I was in Five Iron. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I was kind of okay with that and because I wanted to get married, and I did. I got married to this really cool – this is a weird part. I think you guys would love this, and I don't think I've ever shared it. The energy my husband has is exactly like my brother. Mm-hmm. Oh, we often say – and this it's not to sound you know, terrible, but – if your brother wouldn't have passed away, I don't think he would have considered me and dated me. Because mm-hmm. I'm a fast person. And I'm an intense person. And I'm a hyper person. And the world spins, spins, spins. Yeah. And then when my husband was just my friend and get into my car, I felt like everything just slowed a bit, was more manageable, was more peaceful. And that was my brother's energy. Mm. He kind of balanced in some ways. Oh, absolutely. Not kind of. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's the yin to my yang. It's like... I needed that person that was a safe place, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that's why I think I didn't even recognize when I started to fall in love with Steven was he was just always there. And it was kind of like my brother was always there because I was my only sibling. Plus they both were around six, two and skinny, skinny, skinny. <laughs> and in fact, the first time my mom hugged my now husband, she got emotional because it physically was similar mm. and, and, mm. and save your tissues for this. But when we got married, oh good. Oh, here you go. We got married on Father's Day, and my dad, the strict Cheech talking man that he is, if you picture Cheech, you know, with the mustache, that's my dad. <laughs> totally. I really like that image. It's actually, yeah, I'll send you a picture. Um, <laughs> during my wedding ceremony, you know, at the reception, my dad gave a little speech, and it was Father's Day, and he said, "What better gift could my daughter give me on Father's Day than a new son?" Hmm. Yeah, there you yeah, go. And I don't, I don't have. <laughs> Got Kleenex around anywhere. So I know. thanks for that. Good I know. <laughs> uh, I know. Mm. I know. I'm I'm really blessed. Yeah. Really blessed. That's lovely. Mm-hmm. What led to the band getting back together? Can I ask that? Yeah, it was a terrible rumor because I have a big mouth. It basically, I was at Cornerstone and some kid came up to me, and this is, you know, way after Five Iron had broken up, and some kid was like, Well, he's not a kid, you know, but that's what I think of him. And he says, <laughs> You know, he's probably like 25. He's like, oh, yeah, he's a kid. Yeah. Will Five Iron ever get back together? And I said, I hope so. That would be awesome. That would be amazing. Kind of things like that. 
And then uh, that's, you know, then I drive home from Chicago, from Chicago back to Denver. By the time I got home, the internet had exploded. And this kid wrote a blog saying, Five Iron Frenzy to reunite. <laughs> he, he took your hope and was like, yes, this is it. It's happening. <laughs> well, so my phone and my voicemail had gone ballistic. And all the guys in the band that kind of knew my number at the time, because I'd lost track of some of them, were like, what did you say? Then we started having conversations. And a couple of the guys said, this could be cool. What if? And that's kind of what sparked it. Scott said he was writing new music. Reese, is, Reese was the most gung-ho. He said, what if? I was like, please do not play because I really want to do this. And if it's not going to happen, uh, like, but yeah, we, we did. We started having long conversations and we found out that we wanted to do it again. Mm-hmm. Something that is pretty beautiful. And I want to share this with you. Um, you'd talked about how you, as you sort of entered into the band, you were kind of discovering who you are. And I think along the way, that has helped shape who you are and who you know you're becoming. Um, and I know that everybody in the band too has grown and changed and has come out in different places too. But I, I know that when the news of the new album came out, um, I have friends who have gone through a process of deconstruction of their faith and trying to people who desperately love Jesus and yet can't figure out what the crap to do with the church or what to do, like how to be institutionally part of this thing. Um, And the news of the new album coming out and then just lyrics that they've been listening to and enjoying. And it's been, it's permission giving to be in process. And that's something that, that you've always done in a very thoughtful way. Um, but without shying away from addressing things that should be part of the process of wrestling for a lot of people of faith and not of not people who aren't right. like people of faith. Right. Um, but that unfortunately a lot of uh, bands or musicians may not address. And so, yeah, I'm just, I have a particular friend in mind. I won't drop his name as I'm saying this, but I, he, he, it, he received that as permission to be in process, to know that there was a new record coming out. And when he finally has listened to it, it's been a gift to him. So, yeah. Yeah, I wrote the lyrics to a song called All That Is Good. And uh, that was my song that was written kind of to, it's more questions and answers, but it was like, you know, I'm this young, this is after I built my house and I was this young gung-ho Christian girl. And it's like, I struggle when my friends decide they're not going to follow Jesus anymore. You know, it's, it's, you can almost take it personally, even though it's not your struggle. It's like this betrayal sometimes, or this fear or this control, or like if I had the right words, or if I was a better example, um, would they still be doing this? And so that was kind of my way of saying, do all streams lead to one sea? And fascinatingly enough, Five Iron broke up and two of the guys are no longer Christians, but we're still back in Five Iron. So in a weird, literal way, the streams did lead back to this sea. And out of the respect for each other, major respect, we can be a band again. And it's kind of, honestly, for the fans, it's more of an issue than for the band. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, fans just, you know, oh, wow, that's weird. That's new. That's different. How do you do this? How do you do that? And it's like, we don't. I mean, people I are like, in relationship with Christians and non-Christians every day. <laughs> like, that's what I was going to say. What do you do with that uncle or that aunt or that brother? Yeah. That's not... <laughs> every single day. Sure. Right. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you talked kind of about the permission to, um, to struggle. And when Five Iron broke up, I went through a dark period mentally. And this first happened when I accidentally 
looked up after having two kids and realized I was wearing clothes from Target and listening to the radio. That's not a good thing. <laughs> like a that's break a from thing. who you've been? Like no, a... that's not a good thing for a punk rocker. That's very scary. Not, yeah. I was like, that sounds like me, which is not you. <laughs> that's the thing. That's the thing. That's not bad for a lot of people. What was bad about it is I started lo- losing my identity to become so much of a mother, so much mm-hmm. of a wife, no outlet for me, no like-minded friends, um, mm-hmm. no space to give that quote unquote calling and that energy even though we were raising our kids in scum of the earth church and I had become um, a pastor there, a licensed pastor at scum of the earth church. I was running an art gallery, doing all these cool things. I was struggling with the isolation of new motherhood. Mm-hmm. And this is in a way, the best thing that ever happened to me in new motherhood is this is before all of social media. So thank God I didn't have to live with that. I think that'd be harder, but it, <laughs> Right. Asking strangers their, you know, opinions about every little thing. I can't oh, handle that. Real. No, but I started struggling because my husband was at work all day and I was at home and I had kids. Um, they're less than two years apart. Physically, that was exhausting. I had had a hard time with my second. I had a C-section. Um, it was it was hard. And so I started noticing that there were times where I would discipline and anger to the point of spanking. And I learned it was a big problem when my husband would come home and I wouldn't mention it, the spanking part. Mm, mm -hmm. And in fact, I can say that now without an issue. But if you were to ask me at that time, I couldn't even physically say the word spanking because I would tremble. I had so much guilt, shame, and fear about this parenting mistake I was making. And I was struggling with anger, which was really a lack of control. You can't make kids do what you want them to do. And so this was the first time I dealt with mental health and decided to go see a counselor for the first time in my life. And she said to me, you know, you basically have to speak about it, talk about it, talk about your shadow self, and you have to do some anger management. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it was good. It was so good. I went to counseling maybe like maybe a year, maybe two years. I don't remember. I took breaks and then went back. But I think that had I not done that, I could have been on a really bad path. Well, there's two parts of that that make me happy to hear. Uh, just counseling is something we try and normalize the heck out of here just because okay. I'm, I was a therapist, but I just told Chrissy, like, next Wednesday, I have my first counseling session with a new therapist here in St. Louis, and I'm super stoked to start into that. Awesome. And uh, it's just super beneficial. And so to normalize that for people is great. But also, we're both parents here <laughs> like with you. And... Both of us probably, I'm not going to speak for Chrissy, but I know what it is to, to discipline and anger, to, yeah. um, to allow myself being tired or hungry to guide my response to little people who look to me. Um, yeah. And so I know what it is. You to, can speak on behalf of me. That's fine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, we, we know what it is to ask forgiveness from your kids, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that that guideline you mentioned, like not hiding it from your husband, like that's a, like, man. I think about like, have a, what a, that's a good kind of telltale thing. If this is a person I trust who loves me and who supports me and is for me, and I'm not willing to like share all of this. Right. You know, that's what man. I knew. Yeah, that's, that's what I knew something. was a problem. I was like, why am I not telling him? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I think the counseling was really helpful. was really good. She would, one of the tools she used was visualization, you know, mm-hmm. uh, picture how you're going to behave, picture a, a peaceful house, picture a quiet house. And then also, I think every parent needs, you know, 
time for themselves and time with their spouse and all those, you know, all the healthy things that we, we tend to put on the back burner because we're trying to be the martyr parent and the perfect parent. And so, yeah, that was, I'm really glad that I did that. But it was kind of hard because I once mentioned it to my mom. I love my mom, but we, they don't come from the same generation as us. And I said, you know, I'm going to counseling. And she said, why? Because I did something wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's, that's what you mean by normalizing it. The idea was, mm-hmm. oh, I mm-hmm. wasn't parented well. You failed. So I'm going to counseling. Yeah. <laughs> that was kind of yeah. hard because they're, especially in the Hispanic community, there's a yes. stigma. There's a stigma about vulnerability about crying, about counseling. And then the second part of my story came a little later, but about medication. Mm-hmm. Medication, definitely not part of my family. And uh, at one point I got really down and I came to my husband and said, you know, I think people have seen this in me and it's been about three years that I'm just struggling to get myself out of this funk, you know, um, not really feeling extreme highs, not feeling extreme lows. And basically thinking maybe I should get some medicine. And again, you have that, that, that voice that says to you, well, what if God made you this way? What if God is trying to teach you something mm. and you just have to get through this on your strength and on your faith? And I, I struggled with that for about a year with those messages until I said, I don't care. It's not getting any better. I've wasted a couple of <laughs> years. Let's get some medicine. <laughs> yeah. I, I think they're, we've talked about how sometimes mental, what we call mental illness for some people is like a super, can be like their superpower. Like some people feel things more deeply and and that has led to compassion deeply. But I also don't think, I think there's a big difference between when you suffer, mm. you know, like, cause I don't think God ever wants us to suffer. That's a good and, way of saying it. Yeah. And it sounds yeah. like you were, you were, you were at the point of suffering. So it's like, oh, what yeah. does God want me to learn? Well, I, God doesn't want us to suffer. I think is the, it's yeah. the thing we have to remind ourselves, but, but there are those messages in Christianity that this is a trial and you've got to learn what you got to learn and get through it. And that's just the way that it is. And unfortunately that has gotten, it gets murky in mental health. But I also learned part of my story was, I don't think that quote unquote, the dark night of the soul and mental struggles are mutually exclusive. Mine did definitely come at the same time. You know, mm-hmm. when people give you that metaphor, of, oh, you're just being buried and, or you're just being grafted or you're just, you know, all the metaphors of like <laughs> these painful things that are going to make mm-hmm. you better on the other side. And it mm-hmm. did, it did. Um, <laughs> but she, it was also- She begrudgingly admit. <laughs> <laughs> I guess they were right, but still. <laughs> Damn it, there's fruit on the other side. <laughs> it's delicious fruit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, it was such a good way to put that. <laughs> well, I, I know that I know that I always kind of want to remind people, like, because I've heard the hesitancy on the part of Christians um, and Christian leaders too to acknowledge the that there's anything good about psychiatric medication. Like, you know, we're not even sure about psychology, and <laughs> definitely not sure about counseling. But you putting medication in your body, like God has cre- created you, and the same people that might kind of look down upon this are still wearing prescription eyeglasses. Oh, and let's not you even know. mention birth control. They're not. Yeah, there's birth control. There's <laughs> there's. I need to take supplements to yeah. help me. I mean, there's. Yeah. I don't, I don't have any problem with the idea of like, God, God might be trying to teach you something through the fact that you need to not, you need to recognize you're not self-reliant. Like Mm. we need to, we need to allow ourselves to be cared for that, to recognize that we are 
chemical beings and physical beings that sometimes we need help to, to move from this point to this point and it's okay. Mm -hmm. And God works mm -hmm. in that. So Glennon Doyle says something like, I know God loves me because he made Lexapro. <laughs> That's an antidepressant. And I love, I, I take Lexapro. So I love that line. I'm like, That's yes, awesome. God loves That's me because awesome. we named Lexapro. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But I don't think that was a message that came out for a very long time. I think that's a really kind of cutting edge message for Christian leaders to talk about or writers or speakers to talk about taking psychiatric medicine, which is unfortunate because we do. We use glasses. We take, you know, like if, as, a, as a minister, I don't think I know any minister that would say I have high blood pressure. My doctor prescribed blood pressure medication. I don't know a lot of ministers that would say I just need to pray it away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It just takes more faith. It is definitely a different, it's an, even just in the last 10 years, I've heard a shift in the conversation as you guys yes. probably have too. And these, these kind of podcasts, social media, it's getting more awareness. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. The other part of my story and part of the reason I was struggling mentally was I was becoming a Pharisee <laughs> mm. <laughs> to put it bluntly. Like, honestly, like, you know, how I talked a little earlier about how like you're driving on a car and you think that you're just going to go from A and B and coast on in. Well, now my brother passed away, but I was doing good again. I had found a spouse. I had had kids. We had the little house. Things were good. I was raising support and going to scum of the earth. You know, life was just it good. It sounds so funny to say. I was going to scum of the earth. I, I know, know, right? <laughs> life was good. And I remember almost thinking to myself that this is it. This is just how it's going to be. And for whatever reason, no sooner did I say that than I started recognizing that I was becoming a Pharisee. I was believing that I had a handle on God, that if people were struggling, that there was something they were doing to make them struggle. Mm -hmm. I stopped having the empathetic point of view. Um, and I almost stopped asking for God to talk to me. I stopped asking for God to do more. I started being complacent with living the quote unquote Christian life, but almost without God, which was, is exactly what I think Pharisees did, right? Like living these rules, thinking it's faith driven, but it's not faith driven, it's just habit driven. And if it suits you well, it suits you well, but that wasn't faith. And um, I've said this before in sermons, but it, the metaphor that I use for this is kind of like, do you remember that scene in Willy Wonka where they're having fun, him and grandpa Joe with the fizzy lifting drink uh -huh. and they're having a blast and life is good and they're like doing flips. Like, that's kind of what my life was. And then you look up and you're like, oh, crap, a fan is about to chop off my head. That's right. There's a giant metal fan. Oh, no. <laughs> that's how I felt when I became a Pharisee. It was like, oh, I'm good. Life is good. I got a babe of a husband and beautiful kids. And oh, my gosh. So how did you burp that away? Remember? Yeah, of course, I didn't burp it away. It took another probably two years. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm running with your metaphor. I'm, I'm, I'm referencing know. the thing. I didn't. It was hard again. Mm. It got hard again. Mm. It got hard again. It got, I had to be humbled. Mm -hmm. Basically, it got to the point where like, you know, Willy Wonka yells at them and says, you don't get the promise. You don't get the good life because you screwed up. Mm. And I had to recognize, and I had, I had to be disciplined by the Lord to some degree. It was like, no, this is not how you do Christianity. This is not how you're going to be a leader. You're not going to set up women that you mentor to believe this is it. That's pathetic. If this is it and that's what you're giving them hope for, these cosmetic things, it's no good, right? And so I guess, I don't know the answer entirely, but I guess it comes down to saying faith is fluid and I don't know mm -hmm. what is the next season. Mm -hmm. I just know that I was setting myself up for failure by thinking I had it all. 
I, I come back to the phrase I said earlier about what your music has allowed people. What you're doing, or even saying what you're saying, is your permission giving. And I think we do an incredible disservice to faith, which is uh, believing in things unseen, when we, when we make them hard and fast points that you need to wrap your mind, or, or mind around entirely and master so that you can get out there and teach the rest of the world what they need to master as well. Um, but when we give people permission to, to lean into the mystery mm-hmm. and to know that we are loved deeply by God, even if we don't understand God and aren't even sure if we believe in God. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. a pretty incredible thing. It's a freeing thing. I think that's kind of where um, I'm growing in that space of trusting other people to help tell a part of my story. It's a lot of trust when you're in a band with eight people and you're not the lead vocalist. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to say it's easy. Um, one of the hardest things for me was when we decided with Engine of a Million Plots to end the album with a question. And that song lyrically was written by Scott Kerr, who doesn't identify as a Christian. And the last concept was, um, can you stand the weather if winter lasts forever? And it was a visceral reaction for me. My first answer was, no, we are the band that ends with every new day. We are the band that ends with an answer. We are the band that gives people the hope. And we're going to end a whole album on a question. And of course, I'm always that person that has a strong visceral reaction, then engages my brain, and then later is like, oh, no, that makes sense. (laughs) That's me every time. So honestly, it just comes back to, do I trust that that's part of our story, too, that you you don't get the answer like that? It's not that easy. It's not that simple. And so to end with a question felt appropriate for our band. I don't know. Well, I think you. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, what what question would you end this episode of instructions with, friend? As as, as we, what would you kind of put out there for people? Now the pressure's on. So, I guess it's like that. that yeah, like what? one hour in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Oh. oh, I know. Yeah, yeah. Go in nature and ask. You know, for a miracle. <laughs> uh, I think I would just say, you know. The key points are always usually in my life. And and again, I come back to this is, have you made your faith your own? What parts in your house are yours and what have been imposed? And have you done that spiritual work to feel comfortable living in your house? And if you haven't, that is okay. Uh You can always do that no matter what age. And make sure that the people that you allow to have input are people that are loving and trustworthy. Um, I think that's the first key point. And then secondly, did you build such a, such a house and such a strong wide fence that, you know, nobody's welcome in and that you're in danger of getting your head chopped off because you're a Pharisee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's really, no one wants to say that to anybody. And it's not even that scary. I think normalizing Pharisee behavior is part of the next dialogue for some of us because mm-hmm. that's such a scary thing to say we are them. Mm-hmm. We are the religious them or we're in danger of becoming the religious them. And that's mm-hmm. what I don't think is going to be helpful in this next season of the United States, especially, mm-hmm. is how do we not throw out Jesus because we're disappointed in others that follow him? How do we recognize that there's still a way to hold on to Jesus in this house, but make an authentic space and a safe place for people to build their own houses? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been a gift on many levels for me. It's good to reconnect with you. It's 
good to have this conversation with you. Um, and it's rich. There's so many different points here that I think people are going to kind of sit with and take from. And we're just really grateful that you've made space and you're scheduled to be with us, friend. Truly. Yes. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. Thanks, everybody. This has been Instructions for Living a Life. Thank you for spending time with us. We know that your time and your life are precious. Please visit instructionsforlivingalife.com for more episodes and information about our guests. We'd love to hear from you, so please use the contact form on our website. Please also find us on Facebook or email us at stories at instructionsforlivingalife.com. Like and follow us on social media, and please share this podcast with your friends. Our thanks to the talented Danny Bracken for the use of his music. To hear more, visit lowlumens.com. Again, thank you for inviting us into your story. We're grateful for you.